Are you sheltering in place, isolated, feeling alone? <coughs> well, then you're just like us. Hit me. From Studio P in Sausalito, the home of the quarantined hit, it's time for... Suckatash. Suckatash Shut-In, the Soundcast stimulus package featuring snippets from comedy... Soundcasts. And now, here's your host for this episode, Tyson Saner. Saluton, as does me, Tyson Saner. I am your host for this week here on Succotash Shut-In, Epi 240. In case you missed it, last week on Epi 239, a droll play-in with Gamecasts, my co-host and your every other show host, Mark Hershon, harvested four clips, having the common theme of role-playing games from the soundcasts The Adventure Zone, All D20, Critical Role, and Nerd Poker. It's a fun show, and I urge you to check it out if you've a mind to. They can be found via Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, the Laughable app, iHeartRadio, or even at our home site, SuckatashShow.com. This week, I've got clips from the soundcasts, What Had Happened Was, Oprah's Masterclass, and the Al Franken Podcast. I've also got a Henderson's Pants ad to round out the whole experience. I haven't really got a whole lot more to say on the subject, except thank you for listening so far. I hope you enjoy this episode's offerings. Let's get going. First up, what had happened was, from Starburns Audio, in which host Open Mike Eagle sits down with the legendary Prince Paul to discuss Prince Paul's life, impact, and role in the world of hip-hop. Brought to you by Stony Island Audio. Yes, it's an entire series of interviews specifically with Prince Paul, whom some of you may be aware of and others probably definitely aren't. But that's the way things go, isn't it? At any rate, Prince Paul is a legend. This clip is taken from the episode from July 8th, 2020, and it is on the subject of, it says, Three Feet High and Rising, The Origins of De La Soul. And then its description says, Prince Paul tells the story of producing De La Soul's first album. Along the way, we hear how the group was formed, the creative direction behind the album, and how they fit into the burgeoning hip-hop community around them. From the invention of the skit to the first major sampling lawsuit, it's the story of an album that changed the business of rap music forever. Now, I owned a copy of Three Feet High and Rising when it was pretty new, and I was in high school. It's one of my all-time favorite albums, and I don't think very many, if any, of my peers at the time had ever listened to it or had even heard of it. I made sure a few of them would over time. I enjoy sharing music with people even more than listening to it or making it. So... Mace brings you originally to plug tune in. Right. Did the rhymes change much in, in, in what ended up being the final version, or was that pretty much... No, it was exactly the same. The rhymes were the same, and I've never heard anything like that. I mean, it's really crazy. His approach, especially given, you know, this is 87, nobody was rhyming like this. No, nah, not at all. Answering any author service, prerogative phrase, positively I'm acquitted. Enemies publicly shame my utility. After the battle, they admit since I'm witted. Simply Did they give you any insight to what made them come so different? No, but I did ask them to tell me what the rhymes were. Mm-hmm. Can you repeat it to me? What What does that mean? Well, what does this mean? What does this mean? They just thought differently. And that's the place where I came from, which I think kind of made me an outcast. I think parse, not an outcast, but 
made me view differently in my group amongst even my peers in general. Because, okay, here comes Paul. He's going to come with something stupid. <laughs> oh, it's different. Or people just kind of scratching their heads. And to put us two together, it was like, what? Mm-hmm. Like, it, it, I don't know, man. I, I don't know how you believe, if you believe in fate, if you believe in, you know, universe and think bring things together. But it was definitely a godly thing mm-hmm. to put us two together because I don't think I would have worked well with anybody else at that moment. And I think vice versa for them. Mm-hmm. It, it just happened to, like, you put two sets of weirdos together mm-hmm. to, you know what I'm <laughs> to, to create something. It's interesting that y'all were... In the same neighborhood, y'all knew each other's families and y'all knew each other, you know, from school. How much do you think Long Island helped to create this way of seeing things a little differently? I think Long Island for all MCs made them a little different because you always had the five boroughs, you know, which is Bronx, Brooklyn, uh, Manhattan, Queens, Staten Island. And especially looking at the Bronx, you know what I'm saying, which is the birthplace of hip-hop, we always viewed that as, like, the gauge Mm -hmm. of of everything. You know, you could throw Brooklyn and Queens and all, you know, all the above in there. But, um, and it's always almost mystical. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, man, that's crazy. That's dope. So being out in Long Island, which Long Island really— comprises of all the five boroughs. Long Island have made of families that made it out of the city, see, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, who prospered. So we're all eventually, I mean, essentially, I should say, from the five boroughs. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm from Queens. I think um, Poss is, is from the Bronx. You know what I'm saying? So we're all from these areas. But I think it made us work even harder to, one, to get respected and kind of look at ourselves for inspiration because, you know, we're not, we can't go around the block and see Grandmaster Flash and the Cold Crush right away. We hear tapes, we could kind of, you know, visualize and like, oh, fantasize, like, oh, maybe that's the way it was made. And so we kind of make our own thing right. uh, of what we hear. And, you know, I think that, that makes us almost even work even harder because you, you make whatever the end goal is, is like that much more incredible. You're like, oh, my God, he has these crazy superpowers. Mm-hmm. I, I got to work in the gym like 24 hours a day. Now, mind you, <laughs> he probably just works like half hour a day, but you just put him way on that page. It's like, oh, I got to get ready for the fight. So I think the skill level for a lot of people outside of that, you know, the five boroughs just increased and mm-hmm. the imagination increased more because we just looked at it as like, yo, we have to be that much doper. Right. So y'all come together, decide you're going to work together, and then you start the process of making the first demos. Yes. And I, that is something I assume that you're kind of walking them through the process of. Yeah. You know, it, the, the beautiful thing about being the quote-unquote accomplished person in this scenario is that it's like – as soon as I feel like I had a big cigar in my, in my mouth, I'm going, yeah, kids, this is what I'm going to do for you. First <laughs> Show of all, Paul. <laughs> first of all, I'm going to make a demo. And, so, so, and that's what it was. It was me sitting there from what little I knew or what I did learn from making the stat records. Like, we got to make a demo, but we're going to do one better. We're not just going to make some demo, regular demo. We're going to do 24 track. 24? Uh, what is, wait a minute. So you say 24 track. Yeah. 
um, that's about the number. Of, you mean the number of tracks you used to make a song, or like that the that there's 24 songs on the t- demo oh, tape. Oh man, uh, uh, the tracks to make a song. Gotcha. So okay. we're gonna go into a real studio. We're not gonna go at home with a cassette and, or some little eight track studio, which all this was expensive to make back then. You understand? Right. It's like studio time is expensive. Not like now you just crack open a laptop or mm-hmm. a little four track and and make stuff. That's right. And you can find the show over at Starburns Audio. And Google what had happened was both Open Mike Eagle and Prince Paul can be reached on Twitter. That's Mike underscore Eagle. That's capital M I K E underscore capital E A G L E and uh, capital D capital J capital P R I N C E capital P A U L for Prince Paul. Also, Starburns Audio can be found at capital S T A R B U R N S capital A U D I O. Next up, Oprah's Masterclass, the podcast from Oprah Winfrey. Its description says, Here are the greatest life lessons of some of the most respected and renowned actors, musicians, public figures, and athletes. Handpicked by Oprah, these luminaries reveal their lives with candor and insight in their own words. Listen as Jay-Z, Justin Timberlake, Ellen DeGeneres, Shaquille O'Neal, Reba McIntyre, Dwayne Johnson, and Jane Fonda, just to name a few, share what they've learned about life and their own insights into their personal stories. The clip is from December 19th, 2018. It features a clip from an interview with the actress Cicely Tyson. Now, I should mention that Cicely Tyson passed away on January 28th, 2021, at the age of 96. And I have to say this for context because of the opening sentence in the description, which says, Oscar, Emmy, and Tony Award-winning actress Cicely Tyson is a living legend whose remarkable dedication to what she calls her life's purpose is reflected on film, in television, and on Broadway. Cicely says she decided early on that her work would be more than a job. She'd use her opportunities to help make a difference. Cicely looks back on her iconic career, explaining how she prepared for her most recognized role, that of Binta, Kunta Kinte's mother, in the epic historical miniseries Roots. Quote, No matter where I go in the world, they will say to me, Roots! Unquote, Cicely says. Cicely reflects on her Oscar-nominated role in Sounder and her Tony-winning role in Broadway's A Trip to Bountiful. Cicely also explains that even from the time she was a young girl, she always felt she had a sixth sense. She says she could tell when something was going to happen in her family. Although her intuition worried her at first, Cicely shares how she learned to embrace what she calls her divine guidance. Now, when I was fairly young, I was introduced to the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman, which also starts Cicely Tyson and is for some reason absent from the episode description. When I saw that movie, I learned what racism was. I came to understand that the multiracial neighborhood portrayed on Sesame Street was not impossible, but also not necessarily the norm. I still appreciate the idea of it, also, there should be friendly puppets and people breaking out in song in our everyday lives, in my humble opinion. At any rate, I later went on to read the book, and I really should revisit this movie. Anyway, here's the clip. Cicely doesn't just play roles. She immerses herself in them. In 1974, she began working on the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman. Remember that scene where she defiantly drinks from the whites-only water fountain? Whew. That's a classic. For the Emmy-winning role, Cecily would need to play Jane as she aged to almost 100 years old. 
At the time, producers were concerned that she wouldn't be able to convincingly do that on camera. Well, Cicely Tyson found a way. When I was doing Jane Pittman, they said my body was too straight, that I needed to have some age in my carriage, and they were going to build a hump for my back. And so I said, okay. I didn't know what else to do, so I said, okay. And one day I was in my apartment, and I was sweeping the floor. And all of a sudden, I felt my left side collapse. I walked to the mirror, and I looked in the mirror, and I saw this distorted body. I then crawled to the phone, and I called the producer and director. I said, forget the hump. I've got it. I guess I am just open. You know, when I'm working, I am 24-7 with that character. It stays in my head. There are things that I say and I do. And I say, where did that come from? Oh, that's her. That's not me. It's a part of me. It's playing the character. So when the time comes, it's just you push the button and it's, it's there. It's, it'll come if you allow it. I mean, that you cannot, you can't buy that. You have to feel it, smell it, taste it. It was just immersing myself completely in her world, in her life. If you give your audience something to cheer about, they'll cheer. When I was doing Jane Pittman, everybody came to me and they were talking about the walk. What walk? The walk to the fountain. Well, what about it? Well, you should, you, you don't know? No. I was so divorced from me, myself, and so completely immersed in Jane that I had no idea what they were talking about. It was a walk. She was going to the fountain. She walked to the fountain. Now, when they screened it, I went in while they made the announcement. And then when they started the film, I left. I was caught by the producer. And he said, you have to stay and see this. I don't watch my work, okay? I do it for you and you and you and you. I don't look at it. So I said, okay, finally. I went upstairs to the projection room and I watched it from there. And when I saw her walk down that road, I simply said, I like that lady. I feel that when I have made whole for myself a character and I enjoy her, it is the overflow of that joy that reaches or doesn't reach the audience. And when they get that, they let you know. When they don't get it, they let you know that too. When I was offered Sounder, they wanted me for the school teacher. And I said, I, I don't 
to play the school teacher. I could do that with my pinky. I said, that's no challenge to me. And so I want to play the mother, I said. And they both looked at me and they said, oh, you're too pretty, you're too sexy, you're too this, you're too that, you're too the other. And I said, but I'm an actress. Okay. However, I didn't convince them. And I went home and I started working on the role of the mother. I received, maybe about a month later, a call from my agent saying that the role of the mother was mine. He said, aren't you happy about it? Aren't you excited? I said, no, I always knew it was mine. I was just waiting for them to find out. Okay, so Oprah Winfrey is on Twitter at capital O-P-R-A-H. And the show, I believe, is uh, Masterclass O-W-N. That's capital M-A-S-T-E-R, capital C-L-A-S-S, capital O, capital W, capital N. I think this is the account. There aren't very many followers on it. Um which is relative, but when you consider that Oprah Winfrey has uh, over 50 million people to follow her, uh, I would imagine there would be some trickling towards the account of the show. I, I don't know. Maybe I don't understand how it works. Rest in power, Cicely Tyson. Cherished friends, Bill Haywatt here with a special edition of Trouser from Henderson's Pants in honor of the 200th episode of Suckatash. It's their bicentennial pants. And yes, these have been repurposed from a forgotten warehouse full of American bicentennial pants from 1976 when the United States was celebrating their 200th birthday. Oh, it's the perfect opportunity for old man Henderson to recoup the company's losses from way back then and celebrate this milestone episode of the world's only comedy soundcast soundcast. Men and women both can show up at your neighborhood succotash listening party decked out in a pair of these spiffy unisex red, white, and blue striped Liberty Bell bottom denim beauties. To honor the show, the faces of host Tyson Saner, engineer producer Joe Paulino, executive producer Mark Hershon, and even me, yours truly Bill Haywatt, have been heat transferred onto the buttock region of every pair. Originally designed for Gerald Ford, the color guard at the Tomb of the Unknown Solderer, and Elton John, Henderson's Bicentennial Pants are available for as long as Succotash keeps dropping those episodes. That's Henderson's, makers of mediocre menswear, especially the bottom parts, since 2011. And now back to Succotash. And now back to Succotash. And now back to Succotash. Succotash. I've got this, Joe. I can get this right. Now back to Succotash. That's right. This one was made back uh, for episode 200, which was um, came out almost a year ago now. It was the episode when it was given to me to put into the episode 200 last year. Uh, the date on it was February 27th, 2020, which was my birthday. And... Uh, since it's only the 13th now, that's how I know it wasn't, hasn't been quite a year. Oh, it's been quite a year, but anyway. It felt kind of felt kind of appropriate as a choice, maybe even somewhat celebratory. And, uh, you know, life going on with us still being a part of it is certainly something to celebrate. At least it's something I celebrate. Being alive? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, our final clip offering this evening is from the Al Franken podcast. Uh, from 
District Productive, apparently. So its description says, a five-time Emmy-winning SNL comedy writer-slash-producer joins a four-time, number one, New York Times bestselling author, a three-time highest-rated National Progressive Radio host, a two-time Grammy-winning artist, and a former U.S. senator. So it gets a little crowded in the booth when Al talks public policy and sometimes political comedy with notable guests. Think The Daily without the resources of the New York Times. So the clip is from August 20th of 2020, and uh, the content of its original posting was from September 29th, 2019. So uh, I believe the original episode was called A Conversation with Chris Rock, and this one is called Repeating My Conversation with Chris Rock because it's so damn great. So as you can imagine, it's uh, it's Al Franken in Conversation with Chris Rock. So um would just like to say, first of all, I did not find out until recently that Mr. Franken had a podcast, or I certainly would have been listening to it and would have clipped it already, probably. Second, Saturday Night Live had been a huge influence on my life and sense of humor up until around the early mid-1990s, and then I pretty much stopped watching TV regularly. I'd say I missed a lot of great television programming, but did I really? I certainly missed some. Priorities change, it seems. Anyway, Al Franken and Chris Rock are definitely two of my favorite personalities from that show, which I am almost two years older than. And I really enjoyed the chance to hear them chat as friends. So, um, <laughs> so SNL. Yeah. How long were you with I was on show? SNL three years. Three seasons. And then you went to In Living Color I right went away? to In Living Color right away, and then that got canceled. Yes. Okay. Because um, I'm so smart. Well, I think I think you've been smart, but I think that very often when I see you, no. you bring up Tim McCarver. <laughs> I love Tim McCarver. Caught for uh, Steve Carlton. A great Hall of Fame uh, catcher, uh, MVP one year. Really? Mm-hmm. I can tell this. You want to tell the story? Well, the you story, tell this story. I, I forget. Okay, this is it. We we're in on a Monday before the five o'clock meeting, right? Right. We're in the where they have the read through table. Yes. We're sitting around. We're throwing around a few ideas before uh, the meeting with the host. That's the first meeting of the week. And you say, I'm, you know, I'm cool. I killed on Saturday. I killed. Yeah. And you were like, really, you just said, I don't, I have no pressure on me at all. I, I'm fine. I don't have to think of anything. And I said, Chris, and I know you love baseball. I just read an article uh, by Tim Carver, the catcher for for the Cardinals. And he said that there were some batters in the league that if they got a hit early in the game, they knew they were easier to get out later in the game. And that, and this is, was the kicker, that the pitcher knew it and he knew it. And if there were two out, nobody on early in the game, they'd, let, they'd give them a hit, essentially. I'm assuming this is not a power hitter. Yeah. So they give a guy, uh, just put her right over the middle, <laughs> let the guy get a hit. Oh, and then they knew when it came up later in the game, he would relax and they could get him out easier. And 
the reason I bring this up is is that you bring it up so often to me, and I'm raising it because it makes me look great. <laughs> First and foremost. But also, I think you, you work incredibly hard. I do work incredibly and hard. And that couldn't have been, that can't be the turning point where a light bulb went off and said, I don't want to be that guy. No one wants to be that I guy. I do not want to be that guy. But, it, it, you know, I'll say this what it was. We have this, um, the culture now, it's so weird. No one thinks they deserve the job they have. I was like, I can't believe I'm on this show. I can't believe, I'm so grateful to be here. And I, I see a lot of that. You do? Yeah. Okay. So I used to have that same head. Where it was like, I was just so lucky to be at SNL. As uh. opposed to like, hey, I deserve to be here uh. and make the most of this. Oh, so it got me out of the head of, I'm so happy to be here, this great legacy, I can't believe Laura Michaels speaks to me. Like, all of that shit ah. had to be gone. Okay, okay. <laughs> and I had to act wow. like somebody who's actually in the league. Wow. That's deeper than I thought <laughs> it was. You know what I mean? I and... You know, I don't want to... It still it's, isn't It's not a black... Deep. It's not a minority thing, but that, that does happen with a lot of minorities, I would imagine, or women, or just people that feel... Anybody that feels... Aren't white men. Aren't white men <laughs> that you feel like, I'm so lucky to be here. And that's not the most conducive attitude to greatness. What's interesting is when you said, <laughs> I, you know, I think most people think I don't deserve to be here, and I'm a white... Man, and I don't know anybody. <laughs> yeah, that's or or think that you're lucky to be there, and that's just yeah. a bad attitude to have. It's yeah. just not a. It, it's just not an attitude that's. I think. I think conducive having to, gratitude for having your, gratitude absolutely is very important in life. Having gratitude is very, very, very so th- th- important. Those in are life. two different things. But you should also, you know, Michael Jordan has to know he's Michael Jordan. I think he. Did but, well, you know, just I did, I did a piece on that. I did the Stuart you know, Smalley piece in which Stuart didn't know who he was, you know, and uh, had him doing an affirmation. Uh, Michael, I know there must be a lot of pressure for you to play very well, and I can imagine that a night before a game, you must lie awake thinking, I'm not good enough, uh, everybody's better than me. I'm not going to score any points. I have no business playing this game. Well, not really. Michael, denial ain't just a river in Egypt. When he hosted the show, it was the first time they had allowed NBA pros in the Olympics. Yeah. And I just, I was in his dressing room and I just went, so how do you think that's going to go? And go... Oh, it's nothing. We're going to clobber everybody. And they did. And they did. He was a great guy. He wasn't arrogant, but he did not have a a confidence problem. Al Franken is on Twitter at all lowercase A-L-F-R-A-N-K-E-N. And Chris Rock is on Twitter at all lowercase C-H-R-I-S-R-O-C-K. And here we are again together at the end of another episode of Succotash Shut-In. Remember, 
Mark Hershon will be back as host next week in Epi 241 with who knows what. Well, you know what, if you've been listening for a while. It could be clips. It could be a chat. It could be both, really. We'd both appreciate it if you liked what you heard here and decided to listen to more of us and more of other soundcasts and soundcasters we feature on the soundcast so that you can hear what else is out there and then you take it from there, I guess. It's February 13th, 2021, as I record this, and I gotta say, as far as upsetting days go, this one is right up there with January 6th, 2021. But it's Valentine's Day tomorrow, and... Well, that's different for everyone, so I don't really know what to say about it. Uh, It's dead in the middle of this perfect month that begins on a Monday, ends on a Sunday, and is 28 days long. I feel like these are infrequent. So in this most special of months, why not take a moment to rate and review us on whichever service you listen to Soundcasts on, assuming that that service also provides you the opportunity to do so. We'd really appreciate it. It's what we mean when we ask you to please pass the succotash. You've been listening to Succotash Shut In, the Soundcast Stimulus Package, with your host, Tyson Saner. Brought to you by Henderson's Pants, TrumpPoetry.com, and... Imagine your company's name right here. Find us on the web at SuccotashShow.com, on iTunes, on Stitcher, on iHeartRadio, on YouTube, on SoundCloud, on the (laughs) laughable app, and tattooed on your mother's rear end. You can hear us streaming and like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Succotash Show. Email us at T-Y-S-O-N at SuccotashShow.com. Or call into the Succotash Skype line at our toll call number 818-921-7212. That number again is 818-921-7212. You can also upload clips from your favorite comedy soundcast directly to us using our direct upload link at Hightail.com slash U slash Succotash. Production of Succotash is overseen by Joe Paulino through the auspices of Studio P. Sausalito, the home of the hit. Our hosts are Mark Hershon and Tyson Saner. Our musical director is Scott Carvey. Our booth assistant is still Kenny Durgis. And until next time, I'm your loyal booth announcer, Bill Haywatt, reminding you to please wash your hands and pass the Succotash. Goodbye. This has been a Succotash Patch production.